The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. As stated in an earlier episode discussing types and shadows, when we study all of Scripture, we tend to see that indeed God seems to create all things according to a pattern which testifies of Him. As we continue to look and study the visible and invisible things of creation, we are able to increasingly see God's reflection to some degree in that mirror. When these examples occur within Scripture, we characteristically refer to them as types or shadows. We shall also see that ultimately, as with all Scripture, that these types and shadows point to the substance, which is Jesus. In this episode, we continue our study of the story of Jacob and Esau. When we finished our last episode, Rebecca was preparing to send Jacob to her brother Laban in Haran. In Genesis 28, prior to leaving, Isaac calls Jacob to him. This time, there can be no mistake. Isaac knows it is Jacob before him. 
rather than rebuke or reprimand Jacob for having supposedly deceived him earlier, Isaac repeats the blessing to Jacob in verses 3 and 4. Quote, and God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham." Unquote. Now, if there was this completely immoral, illegal, fraudulent behavior on Jacob's part in obtaining the blessing, then how could Isaac, a man of faith who believes in God, give this second blessing without so much as a word of negativity towards Jacob? I submit that the best explanation is that neither Esau nor Jacob had anything in and of themselves to merit a blessing at any time. The miracle is that God would demonstrate his grace and mercy to either man, given the fact that they were both fallen men. The only reason that Jacob could receive a blessing and not a curse was because Rebekah, the type of Christ, would take Jacob's curse for him, while Jacob stood before Isaac, the type of God, clothed in the pleasant vestments which are the type of Christ's righteousness imputed as a gift to him. Like Rebekah, Isaac also repeats the instructions given to Jacob to go to Laban in Haran, which we have previously discussed. In verses 6-9, through 9, we read that Jacob is said to obey his father Isaac and his mother Rebekah. Isaac reiterates to Jacob, forbidding him to take the daughters of Canaan. With all of this, you would think that Esau, who is said to also be listening, would have finally learned a lesson. Perhaps Esau would see that his own rebellion, worldliness, fleshliness, and disdain for the things of God has robbed him of God's blessing. No, Esau has not learned. Instead of repentance, Esau demonstrates a hardened heart, as it is said in verse 8 and 9. Quote, and Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael, and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife, unquote. Once again, the type hits dead center to the substance with this revelation. The name Mahaloth means, quote, sickness or sadness, a sad melody, unquote. Moreover, Mahaloth is the daughter of Ishmael, who, as should be well known, was the son not of promise, but of the flesh, apart from faith and the perfect will of God. All this reminds us of the fact that without God's grace, we despise and disdain the things of God. We remain in the place where, like Esau, we find ourselves rejected because of our condition of rebellion. Our hearts remain hardened. As a result, we double down on our rebellion against God. Instead of peace, joy, acceptance, and a blessing from God, we, like Esau, find ourselves lost in the carnal desires and rebellion to further antagonism with God. In the end, instead of joy and peace, we find, as did Esau, sadness and sickness as our bride, 
rather than the daughter of Laban, who is purity and sanctification pleasing to God. With this entry, the Old Testament drama concerning Esau and Jacob comes to a close. But the commentary regarding the type, and more importantly the substance, is not over. In the fullness of time, we flash forward to the future and land in the New Covenant book of Romans chapter 9. Here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins to lament regarding what he refers to as his continual sorrow and great heaviness for his brethren, the Jews, the house of Israel, who are his kinsmen in the flesh. He is so moved that he states that he wishes that he could be cursed by Christ if it would benefit his brothers to come to salvation. Paul points out that Israel, the Jews, are God's people to whom God gave his promises. It is they who provided the lineage from God through Adam all the way to Christ the Messiah who is the second Adam. Just as Paul would get depressed over the seeming failure of Israel to appropriate God's promises, Paul points out that God's elect is not limited to the fleshly Israel. Neither should anyone despair because they are not genetically related to the seed of Abraham. Finally, concerning the substance of our type at hand, Paul gives explanation beginning in verses 7 and 8. Quote, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed." Unquote. In context with our story, we have Isaac and his son Esau, who is the child of the flesh the type of all those who remain in the flesh who are not the children of God. Then we have those who, by God's grace, are drawn to obtain God's promise of blessing, as did Jacob. Then, just as we are smoothly sailing along, we continue reading verses 9 through 13. Fair warning, let all hands make ready as we enter theological deep water. Dive, dive. Quote, For this is the word of promise, At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Unquote. When Paul states, quote, As it is written, unquote, he is referring to Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which says, quote, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas, 
Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, saith the Lord of hosts. They shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever." Unquote. Here, in these verses, we are confronted with attempting using our finite human minds beset with sin, biased, and humanistic philosophy to understand the infinite, perfect, and eternally profound counsel of God's sovereign will and purpose. Both Romans and Malachi appear to suggest the idea that God looked at the two sibling brothers, i.e. Jacob and Esau, in the womb, who had done nothing good or bad. Further, while in that condition of equality, God chose Jacob while rejecting Esau. Worse yet, God is said to hate Esau and to love Jacob. Now, various commentaries and theories deal with these passages in different ways. Many gravitate towards the idea that God is not directly or exclusively choosing Jacob or Esau as individual persons. Instead, God is said to be choosing the eventual nations whom Jacob and Esau ultimately represent in time to come. Further, the hate and love which God is said to exhibit here are more properly interpreted as God's preference of one nation over the other. Others maintain that God is exercising his unilateral sovereign will, according to his perfect pleasure and purpose, in choosing Jacob over Esau as individual persons before either one was born and before either one had opportunity to do anything good or bad. Finally, it may be that both Jacob and Esau as individual persons, as well as the nations they represent, are in view, since one cannot have a nation without first having its individual persons who comprise said nation. Whatever the answer is, clearly Paul anticipates the specter and allegation of unfairness against God Thus, Paul proactively asks the question in verse 14, quote, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, unquote. Paul then goes on to explain in verses 15 through 18, quote, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth." Unquote. So clearly the grace, mercy, and compassion in view here begins with individuals such as Jacob, Esau, Pharaoh, and others, and then proceeds to increase its boundaries to eventually encompassing entire nations comprised of such individuals. 
At the same time, it remains clear that the grace, mercy, and compassion bestowed to individuals or to nations is not predicated on the merits of that individual or that nation, but rather on the perfect sovereign will and wisdom of God. The fact that God will have mercy and compassion on whom he wills is an unavoidable reality. Viewed correctly, all of us start out as fallen and in rebellion. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, there has never been, nor ever will be, any person who apart from Christ's imputed righteousness will ever merit God's approval. Instead, we all merit God's wrath based upon our own merits. If and when we escape God's wrath, it is only because he has chosen to cover us by his imputed righteousness according to his grace through faith in Christ. Despite having this discerned viewpoint, there would still be those who hold the perspective that because God shows grace to some and not to all, that God is unfair or unjust. In particular, the secular humanist often appoints himself as the ultimate judge and authority. According to them, God should be saving everyone regardless. The ultimate test, if there is one, is people doing their best, being sincere, and having a score that is marginally better than average. Any attempt on God's part to have a say in what he is looking for or evaluation of man's condition is just mean and unfair. Any analysis on the part of those who have been redeemed by God to comment on God's will is seen as judgmental, intolerant, unloving, and unkind. As the poison of rebellion grows, those who are entrenched in its grasp may fall prey to the twisted logic of the flesh. Some will read that God will have mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. For this reason, that God has proactively used his will to harden their hearts, they have no escape. If they are in rebellion, it is God's fault, and not theirs. But Paul argues against this very rationalization in verse 19. Quote, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Unquote. Paul then answers his own question posed in verse 20 and 21. Quote, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it? Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Unquote. In other words, God is sovereign and perfect in all ways. God is likened to a potter who creates whatever he is pleased to make from the same lump of clay. Whatever the potter makes, he is then perfectly within his rights to do without work as he sees fit. Whatever decision the potter makes, he is only accountable to himself. Whatever the potter does is perfect and just. 
in the midst of this, it would be laughable to imagine that the various works of clay made by the potter would be squabbling about how or why they were made, or comparing themselves one to another and complaining about perceived inequities. As we move from the case of an earthly potter analogy to that of God, the standing of the clay lessens altogether. In this light, it must be remembered that God created the lump of clay from nothing. Thus, the entire lump of clay is God's property unilaterally and alone to do with as he sees fit in his good pleasure. Now, if we were to take this analogy back to creation, what we might recall is that when God created the clay and formed it into Adam and Eve, that they were both created in the image of God and declared to be very good. That is the lump of clay, the vessels, Adam and Eve. Mankind were vessels of honor given that they were both covered by their faith and trust in God. Further, this condition of being vessels of honor was the condition which God gave to Adam and Eve according to his permissive will. As we proceed, we recall that it wasn't long before Adam and Eve made the choice, via God's permissive will, to take their faith and trust off God and to supplant their own knowledge, efforts, works, and merits to attain being like God. As soon as they did so, they removed themselves from God's covering perfection and were naked. Both Adam and Eve, as well as all mankind, were now vessels of wrath or vessels of dishonor. Hence, it is critical that we all pause to remember that at this point, God had every right to cast the entire lump into the furnace for destruction. The blessed miracle of God's grace and mercy is that he chooses to redeem any from that furnace. Paul also confidently says no to those who lodge any complaint of unfairness against God, telling them that they are out of order. That which is created has no standing to argue or question its creator. There has never been a human who can stand up and blame God for how they have turned out. This is a difficult pill to swallow because for the most part, we each grow up with the idea that we are autonomous beings. We each imagine that we can construct our own destiny and define who we are. But we all have, in fact, a total inability based on our nature to merit God's acceptance or favor. Some will ask why God would allow such a thing to happen. Why did God not just lock Adam and Eve away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Essentially, the solution would have been for God to use whatever level of force necessary to make Adam and Eve love and obey him. Hence, the answer is that in order for love and obedience to be meaningful and sincere, there needed to be a free will choice. This is also what Paul argues in verse 22 and 23. Quote, 
What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? Unquote. Accordingly, viewing this potter's analogy from a proper perspective, when we look at our condition apart from being covered by God's image and perfection, we are all vessels appointed unto wrath and dishonor. The only way that we have hope to move from being vessels of wrath and dishonor to vessels of honor is by God's redemptive gift towards his elect in supplying Jesus' shed blood as a propitiatory covering to our lives, whereby God's just wrath against sin was poured out on Christ, and we are now a new creation born by his resurrection. At this point, our past, whatever it was, no matter how bad, is buried with Christ. It is forgiven and forgotten. It is separated as far from east to the west and is remembered no more. We are reconciled to God. We are able to come before God and like a little child on his father's knee where we know him as our Abba, our father, our Papa. There we remain and according to Romans chapter 8 verses 38 and 39, no force can remove us. Quote, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unquote. Father, I pray that you would draw those whom you will to receive their earnest longing and desire to come before you and receive that blessing which you have prepared for us before the foundation of the world. As we come, I pray that you would impart to us the discernment to recognize and confess our condition is that of Esau. We give thanks that through your infinite love you have prepared and maintained the pleasant vestments of your son, Yeshua, by which you cover us, and like Jacob, have the standing by which we now receive your blessing of justification, sanctification, joy, peace, and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.